You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a classic song, I think it's from, um, I, I, it's a movie I never saw, Any Get Your Gun. And it goes, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And then there's this call and response. No, you can't. No, you can't. Okay, good. So bear with me here for a second. This is actually a very helpful summary of the book of Hebrews, Okay. Anything you can do, Jesus does better. Jesus does everything better than you. Well, better than what? Anything and everything. Jesus is better than fill in the blank. Wait a minute, everything? Yeah. So for the first century Jewish believers, the recipients of this letter, or maybe even particularly this sermon that we have as the book of Hebrews, they would have had a series of follow-up questions. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Better than angels? Yes. Better than prophets? Yeah. Better than the priests? Yeah. Better than King David? Better than the Sabbath? Yes. Wait a minute. Better than Moses? And then they're like, I, I, I shudder to even ask this question, but I'm going to because I have to. Better than the Torah? The law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai, the everlasting covenant? Yes. There is nothing better, no one greater than him. And in all these descriptions that we're going to see slowly through the book of Hebrews, it is essentially showing us three really important things. That Jesus is the greater prophet, it speaks to us. He's the greater priest who sacrifices for us and atones for sin, not through the blood of animals, but his own blood, not year after year after year, but as Hebrews says, once and for all. And he's the greater king who doesn't die and then his son takes his place, but lives forever. Faith in him alone endures. Now, today you're probably not inclined to revert back to any temple practices found within ancient uh, Judaism. Maybe no one is like longing for the day of watching priests slit the throats of goats before you. But the truth is, there is something or someone that you and I are tempted to revert back to. Some old way of living, some old way of thinking, some old way of relating, some old way of even worshiping God. And so for the full weight of this book to fall on us as it's intended, 2,000 years later, we 
have to fill in the blank as well. We too must confess that Jesus is better than fill in the blank. He's better than your life. He's better than your loved ones. He's better than your child. He's better than that one relationship. He's better than your dreams of the future. He's better than your career. He's better than your comfort. He's better than your accomplishments. He's better than your possessions. He's better than your pursuits. He's better than sex. He's better than food and drink. He's better than financial security. He's better than your religious performance. He is better than anything and everything. Jesus quite simply is better. And the author of Hebrews wastes no time introducing us to this Jesus. He's not just going to say, well, he's better, take my word for it. But he's going to show us why Jesus is better. And even in these first few, uh, few verses, the author is grabbing our attention and offering us this extraordinary list of attributes that explain who Jesus is and why we should hold fast to him. So if you're taking notes, and let me just warn you here too, we're gonna spend two weeks on the passage that was read today. So again, I'm really cautious of your note taking today. But first point is this, Jesus is the word of God. Verses one through, halfway through verse two. Long ago, epic beginning, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is not to say that God never spoke before Jesus. And, as we saw in our confession this morning, this is not to say that we now disregard what God spoke before Jesus. The scriptures are still the inspired word of God. What is being said here is that Jesus is the final and the ultimate word of God. And the unique way that God has spoken to us through Jesus Christ is better than the old. And the new way that he has spoken to us makes sense of the old. So one author uh, explained it this way. That he, he said that the Old Testament was like a play without a final act. So imagine a play. It's ramping up. It's the, the characters are building. There's tension in the plot line. The plot line thickens. And then pff, no resolve. What happened? And Jesus enters in to the story as the final act. Jesus is the one who brings fulfillment to it all. The Old Testament scriptures told of the glory and the majesty of God, but Jesus came to display them perfectly. Moses and David and Jeremiah and all of the rest, they sang songs about God's mercy. They told us about God's nature and his character and his love. And they recorded these accounts of God's generosity and his justice and his holiness and his power. But Jesus embodies it all. The prophets spoke as messengers on behalf of God, often the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, pay attention, I'm bringing a message from God. Thus saith the Lord, and thus saith the Lord, and thus saith the Lord. But Jesus came to us and said something very special. Truly, truly, I tell you, I'm speaking. So Jesus doesn't just speak on behalf of God. Jesus speaks as God himself. The word of God 
It's not a series of ideas. It's not just this series of disjointed stories. The word of God, we're told here, is a person. And all that we would ever seek to know about God and all that we would ever seek to hear from God is revealed in this person named Jesus Christ. And this is a consistent message. In fact, the Apostle John, in his epic opening to the Gospel of John, says this, in the beginning was the Word, I'm glued, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does God want to say about himself? We find the answer in Jesus. What does God have to say about the world and our origins and the future of this planet and the future of the human race? The answer is found in Jesus. What does God have to say about me? The answer is found in Jesus. It's through the Son of God, Jesus, that God speaks to us, he renews us, he gives us an identity, he gives us hope for eternity. It's really interesting here that it says, in these last days. So there's some sort of historic pivot that has occurred because of Jesus. God's final word, which is Jesus Christ himself, is the beginning of a new age. History hinges on Jesus. Now, we know this historically, that the calendars literally hinge on Jesus. Like if you study history, it's B.C. and A.D. and all has to do with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ which is important, significant, but it's symbolic. More importantly than a Gregorian calendar is that Hebrews is saying God speaking through Jesus is the dawn of a new day. A word that is so powerful and life-altering that it ushers in a new era for this world. Why would you want to go back? Why would you want to return? So I want you to consider this. If God can initiate an entirely new stage of human history through the good news of Jesus Christ, Acts 17 would describe it as the world being turned upside down through the proclaiming of Jesus Christ. If God can do this through Christ... He can certainly initiate a new era for your life through this same word. I want you to think about all the ways that we seek to reinvent ourselves today. The the ways that we try to become new people, trying to make ourselves something new, trying to make ourselves something different, trying to re-identify ourselves. All of the identities that people form around gender and around self-expression and around their accomplishments. But only Jesus, Hebrews will show us, can bring you into an entirely new season, a new start, a new life. Only this word from God can make a new you. Why would you settle to try to reinvent yourself? Why would you settle for things that you try to do to make yourself new? Jesus is the word of God. Secondly, you guys still with me? Jesus is the son of God. 
Verse two, he has spoken to us by his son. I'm not pulling any rabbits out of a hat here, guys. This is right from the Bible. Jesus is the son of God. Now remember, this original audience here was a church under severe pressure. And many of them were strongly considering abandoning faith in Jesus Christ and returning to the old familiar religious ways. And so what the author wants the church to understand is that Jesus is not just some new charismatic religious leader or some new addition to the many religious options out there. We even hear this today. Well, yeah, Jesus, he was a great guy. He's he's a way to God. There are many ways, but Jesus is one of those. No. If Jesus is just another religious sage, who lived a wonderful life and told amazing stories and taught all these great moral lessons and principles, then yeah, take it or leave it. In fact, do what most people, even claiming to be Christian, do today. Take what you like from it and abandon what you don't like. You have no obligation to follow religious leaders. Lots of people don't listen to me. Join the club. Just kidding. You guys do wonderful. But Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is not just a religious leader. He's not. He is the very son of God, which changes everything. He is not a supplement to your religious experience. Jesus is either Lord of it all, or he's nothing at all. There's a very important encounter that the first disciples had with Jesus. It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Jesus takes his disciples to this very strange place called Caesarea Philippi, where there was this sort of like shopping mall of temples for pagan practice. You could go and you could worship Zeus and you could worship Pan and you could worship all kinds of the Roman gods. You had your choice. You could just come into this door and then you go in here and then you go in there and you go in there. And Jesus takes them to this very place with all of these competing ideas about religion and worship and the meaning of life. And he asks them, hey guys, what do people say about the son of man? And they begin to answer, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Other people think that you're Elijah. Some say that you're uh, Jeremiah. They they think that you're one of the prophets. They, They think that you're a great leader and not just a prophet, but you're one of the greats, man. You're with up there with like Elijah and Jeremiah. That's what they're saying. And then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, he asks them one of the most important questions that I think we have to ask as well. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter responded, you are the Christ, the what? The son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You didn't come up with that on your own. That came from God. But what this highlights is that there's always going to be people who are inspired by the life and teachings of Jesus. Yeah, he was this great prophet. Guess what? Even Islam teaches that. But that's not Christianity. It's a flimsy faith that will not save. A great moral teacher, a great prophet is not strong enough to support the weight of your soul. 
A great prophet is not able to carry you through times of suffering. A great prophet is not able to deliver you from death. What matters most, what you have to come to terms with today, either reject it or accept it, is the claim that Jesus is far more than this just great, inspiring teacher, but that he is nothing less than the divine Son of God, co-equal with God the Father. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, why is this important? Well, gosh, we don't have time. I just opened up a can of worms with that question that was impromptu. But I think one reason, among many reasons, that this is extremely important is that Jesus isn't just saying, like, hey, acknowledge that I'm the son. Do you know who I am? What makes the gospel of Jesus so unique is this. We find this in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we see here is that Jesus didn't see his status as son of God, as something to be leveraged for his own advantage, Jesus saw his status as son of God as something to be leveraged for our advantage. We're told here he traded all the rights of a son for the suffering of a servant. He traded all of the comforts of the throne of heaven for the agony of the cross. Why? As an early church leader, Athanasius, once said, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. It's through the one son, the unique, only son of God, that we become children of God. Jesus, through his incarnation, Jesus, through his suffering, agony, and specifically the cross, experienced abandonment, he relinquished that status of son. Why? So that many sons and daughters could be welcomed into the family of God. No one can do what Jesus Christ, the son of God, has already done for you. Third, Jesus is the heir of all things. Verse two, again, I'm not pulling any rabbits out of a hat here. His son whom he appointed the... Heir of all things, that's who Jesus is. He's the heir of all things. Because Jesus is the only eternal son of God, he is the rightful heir of heaven and earth and everything in between. Now, what this does not mean is that God the Father is planning on dying one day. He's drafting out his will and he's like, I want it all to go to Jesus. You know, one day I'm gonna be gone and I'm gonna make sure he's taken care of. No, it means that all that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, everything. Abraham Kuyper once said that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. Our life is his, our future is his, our world is his, there's nothing outside of his reach, 
There is nothing that he can lose. There is no one that can claim what is his. There is no space that he cannot be present, which means that there is nothing that he can't heal, that there's no one he can't reach, that there's no person or situation he cannot transform. It is all his. He sets all the terms, and because he is Jesus, he sets really good terms, really good terms. And I think it's important that Jesus is listed here as the heir of all things before we're told about anything that Jesus did. Nothing Jesus did made him the rightful heir. It's because of who he is and he's always been. He's the beloved son of God from eternity. Now, he proved this through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. He proved that position. But he is the heir specifically because he is the son. There's a scene in the Gospels. And where we find it in the Gospels is really important, particularly in the Gospel of Mark at the very beginning. And Jesus comes to be baptized And he comes out of the water, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and the Father speaks over uh, over him from heaven. We are going to lean way into Trinitarian theology in the book of Hebrews, so put your seatbelt on, by the way. The Spirit descends, the Father speaks, and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what's important about this is this. Before we're told Jesus did anything for God, we're told that he is the beloved of God. Can we like let that sink in for just a minute? Before he did anything, God the Father speaks over Christ and says, this is my boy. That's the nature of a heavenly inheritance. You don't earn it by performance. You don't lose it by a lack of performance. You receive it because of who you are. Now this says something amazing about Jesus, but guess what, this also says something very special about those who belong to Jesus through faith and how we now relate to the heavenly inheritance as well. What's interesting is the word here in verse two, heir of all things, if you scroll down to verse 14, there's another word that sounds very similar, inherit salvation. It's the same word. The same word to describe Jesus is then applied to those of us who inherit salvation by faith. Angels sent out into the world as ministering angels to serve those who will inherit salvation. We, turns out, are heirs as well. Fun story. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man. He and his son shared a love for fine art. They would travel the world collecting some of the most expensive pieces out there. And when the, their nation went into war and conflict, the son was enlisted and he was on the front lines for only a few weeks and he ended up dying on the front lines. The father was devastated. And one day, the father's at the home and he gets a knock on the door and it's another young man, a soldier, who had been stationed with the boy. And he had drawn a detailed photo or a detailed painting of the son that he wanted to give to the father and the father loved and cherished it. Sadly, about a year later, uh, the man ended up dying and his estate went up for sale and all of these you know, epic 
art collectors from all over traveled for this one event, this one auction, trying to get a piece of the action. But what's interesting about the auction is that a painting that no one was expecting was the first to be auctioned off. It was the painting of the man's son. And the auctioneer asks, you know, for the opening bid. And the whole room is silent. Someone from the back ends up calling out, like, what, what are you doing? We're here for, we're not here for that painting. We're here for the expensive stuff. We're here for the fine art. He says, no, we have to, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now, who will take the sun? Finally, the, the one-time gardener spoke up and he said, will you take $10 for it? It's all I have. I knew the boy and I'd like to have this to remember him by. I have $10. Will anyone go higher? Called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer said, going once, going twice, sold. Immediately, he looked at the audience, closed his books, and announced that the auction was over. And everyone's stunned and in disbelief, and someone spoke up and said, what do you mean it's over? Like, we haven't even gotten to the fine paintings. We haven't sold, there's millions of dollars worth of art here. What's going on? And the auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of this man, whoever would have this painting would in inherit the entire estate. It states very clearly right here, the wishes of the father, whoever receives my son gets it all. The good news is that the one who has the son through faith has all that belongs to him. Everything that is his, he shares with us. Romans chapter eight says this, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In the family of God, children don't have to earn it, and children don't have to worry about losing it. I know as we're thinking about inheritance, we're thinking about, like, I could be out of the will. <laughs> but we simply inherit it by being joined with Jesus through thick and thin, by persevering in faith to the end. So what this means for the Christian, as we'll sing and celebrate in just a moment, is that you are far richer than you could ever imagine. Your future, your status, your worth is not defined by where you grew up or the family that you grew up within, your education or your lack of education. You are more than your career. You are more than your financial status. You are more than your retirement plan. You are more than your tax bracket. For the one who is trusted in Jesus, you are nothing less than a co-heir with Christ. Amen? This may sound sort of heartwarming, and I even get the sense right now, because I'm speaking to a Western church that, for the most part, for many of us, we live very comfortably. So when I say, you are far, more, far richer than you could ever imagine, and you inherit all the riches of heaven through Christ, I think for many of us, maybe the highest emotion that we can experience is sort of, oh, that's heartwarming, that's sweet, that's great, that's like an added bonus, but this would have been an absolute source of courage and strength and that like what people needed to keep going for the first century church that were facing the threat of losing everything for Jesus. 
And what seems like maybe just kind of an added, ethereal, sort of abstract bonus for us Western Christians today would have been an absolute game changer for those who had been stripped of almost everything in their life. Hebrews says, Jesus may be all that you have, but remember, Christian, Jesus is all that you need. And if you have Jesus through faith, you have infinitely more than you could ever imagine. Finally and briefly, Jesus is the creator. Verse two, his son through whom he, what? Created the world. Jesus isn't just the heir of all things, but it turns out, we're told here, he's also the creator of all things. Jesus was there. Now there's a bit of mystery. But there's Jesus on the scene with the Father and the Spirit forming the world in the beginning before anything existed. Jesus was. It kind of reminds me of that epic phrase he would tell people in his ministry. Before Abraham, I am. What? Before the world, I am. So why is Jesus better than everything? That's the question we got to ask ourselves today. Why is he better than everything? And the answer is this, because anything else that you can think of, like whatever comes into your mind right now, and maybe a better way to do this is like, don't think of something. (laughs) Whatever comes into your mind that is not distinctly God, anything or anyone that you would turn to in your moment of need, whatever it is, it has been created. It needed someone to make it, someone to shape it. Someone to conceive it, someone to think it, someone to say it. But Jesus, we're told here, is the creator. He is and he's always been. No one made him. He is. And the same God who spoke the world into being, who created galaxies with a word, has spoken into our life now through his son Jesus. And this word of God, Jesus Christ, if this word could form galaxies and a universe bigger than the human eye can see, bigger than we can even imagine, then imagine what he can do in your life. Imagine what he could do in all of those areas that you are failing to change for yourself. Imagine what he could do and what kind of life he could speak into all of those areas of frustration, utter despair, overwhelm, and even thoughts of wanting to give up. What kind of life could God bring about through this better word, Jesus Christ? When the earth was without form, Void, dark, and chaos. He brought life with his voice. And he can do it again within you. He made you. He can certainly remake you. He made our world. And guess what? He's making all things new. Fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation toward the end. Revelation chapter 21, we're told this. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold... I am making all things new. So today, what I want to do is I want to conclude by asking you to consider this. We circle back to the very beginning. 
Jesus is better than fill in the blank. What things, what people, what ideas, what experiences, what dreams have you elevated above Christ? What areas of your life, what are those areas of your life where you are afraid to admit that Jesus is better? What thing, what person, what idea comes to your mind and you're afraid to put it in that spot? You're afraid of what your life would look like if you submitted that thing to the sovereignty of Christ. What thing are you holding on to that you're afraid to bring into the all-consuming presence of a majestic God like ours? What are you clinging to today? Where have you allowed fear, unbelief, temptation, or how about this, just fatigue, to allow you to settle for anything less than Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we...